Good evening, everyone. Um, tonight's topic is the small thesis, the God of Judaism is a God of love. So I want to begin with this. The stereotype, I imagine, is familiar to all of you. Whereas the God of the New Testament is loving and merciful, the God of the Old Testament is angry, vindictive, and even bloodthirsty. The God of the New Testament thus represents a vast improvement over the God of the so-called Old Testament. This tends to be treated as an unquestioned commonplace in our culture, so much so that I like to think of it as one of the last acceptable prejudices. This is, this is a prejudice that is permissible to publish in the New Yorker, right? <laughs> Most prejudices are not, but you can refer to someone who is out of control with rage as like the Old Testament God, and that's totally fine. I'll give you an example that I chose almost but not completely at random. Joseph Campbell, speaking of all things of his computer, says the following. It seems to me to be an Old Testament God, lots of rules and no mercy. <laughs> so here's the thing. This view is as mistaken as it is widespread. It is rooted in a profound distortion of, or I think probably more accurately, a series of profound distortions of Tanakh, and by the way, also of the New Testament. Um, so my main goal for tonight um, is to try and demonstrate the title of this lecture. That is, to show the extent to which the God of Tanakh, the God in the way Tanakh imagines God, as a God of love, mercy, and forgiveness. And time permitting along the way, I may also put on my other hat and share some thoughts in a more explicitly theological mode about how we ought to think about this God of love. But first, and this is what will occupy us for the bulk of tonight, um, some texts that are directly or indirectly about God's love. So I want to begin with a text that is probably familiar to many or most of you, a text that is a fixed part of Jewish liturgy, part of the liturgy for fast days, the 55th chapter of the book of Isaiah, Sefer Yeshayahu. So just to sort of situate us for a moment, the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, can you hear me? I can't tell if this microphone is actually doing anything. No, you cannot hear me? You can sort of hear me. It's going in and out. Okay. The problem is that when I have a microphone like this, I have the temptation to sing. But since this is a lecture about mercy, I don't want to. But, okay, so you'll tell me if I need to stop because of the microphone. Um, the, the first part, the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah end with a sense of impending doom. Having rebelled against God, the people will be driven into exile Everything in the king's palace will be taken to Babylonia, where the king's own children will serve the emperor as eunuchs. But the second part of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, shifts dramatically and looks forward to a glorious future. Having endured the humiliation and suffering of exile at the hands of a brutal and oppressive enemy, the people are now promised a triumphant return to the promised land. 
The Babylonian Empire may be powerful, but God is more so. And God will now radically alter the destiny of the Jewish people. Footnote that is not particularly relevant. One of the most interesting things is what happens in Isaiah from chapter 56 on is people arrive back in the land and it ain't that glorious. And so we have to sort of figure out a way, how, is, how are we to understand the prophecies of triumphant return in a return that seems far less than triumphant? But here we're focused on the second section of Isaiah, um, the, the, the look forward to a glorious future. Essentially, the story here is that the people have sinned mightily, they have paid mightily, and now the prophet assures them that if they repent, they will be met with God's forgiveness. So Isaiah, these words again may be familiar, calls upon the people to seek Hashem, dear Shu, Adonai, and explains what this challenge entails. Ya'azov rashadarkov ish'aven machshivotav. The wicked person should abandon the path and the thoughts that guide him. Um, Rambam, by the way, understands this verse as the great foundation of virtue ethics in Tanakh, that we are not only required to leave the ways we act, but also to transform our thoughts. And that person should repent to God, return to God, and God will in fact show mercy. And God will be God will be abundant in forgiveness. And then comes this very interesting and somewhat opaque statement. Because my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, says God. Interpreters, both traditional and modern, wrestle with what is the meaning of this last thought? Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. And there is a tremendous range of interpretations. I'll mention just two quickly before going to the one that I think is actually in many ways most convincing and powerful. No? You don't like this one? Let's try this one instead. Great. Better? Now I really want to sing. Okay. Those of you here two weeks ago know I tried to make a joke about Phil Donahue and I saw a bunch of 30-year-old and younger students looking at me like, what planet do you come from? <laughs> this is from the time in history called B.O. before Oprah. Um, so, um, so one possibility, right, is the prophet referring concretely to the present moment. Though the people are exhausted and have resigned themselves to staying in Babylonia, God's very different plans are to redeem them despite their own dejection and desolation. Or, does Isaiah want to remind a skeptical and skittish people that though the plans they make may be thwarted, when God makes a decision, God makes God's promises come true? Both plausible readings of the text, and there are others, but I want to mention another one, deeply rooted in medieval parshanut, medieval biblical commentary. And it's basically this. Perhaps Isaiah worries that the people doubt the power of repentance, given the depth of their wrongdoing, they find it hard to believe 
that God will forgive them. It seems more likely to them that God will, perhaps should, remain eternally angry. After all, they would not be so quick to forgive betrayal of them. Perhaps, therefore, several traditional commentaries suggest what makes God unique, what makes God's machshavot and drachim different from human machshavot and drachim is God's unique and wondrous capacity for and commitment to forgiveness. If you look at the third source for a minute, Radak, by David Kimchi, great biblical commentary, commentator of the 12th and 13th centuries. If a person sins towards another, the other will take revenge and will not forgive him. And then comes this fascinating comment. And even though a person might, on the outside, appear to have forgiven the one who has hurt her, he will nevertheless remember quite well what the other did. That which is visible is called derech, he says. And that which is hidden is called a machshava. I, God, am, I forgive abundantly. Not like you. And when I forgive, I really forgive. Nothing of the sin remains with me. This is an amazing claim that is worth thinking about for a minute. What makes God, according to the prophet Isaiah, according to Radak's understanding, what makes God utterly different than a human being is that human beings, well, they kind of forgive. But most of the time, the forgiving is sort of halfway. And even if the forgiving sort of appears total, you know, dig deep enough and you'll still find it there. But God is God in God's unfathomable capacity to let go of wrongs. This passage in Radak always reminds me of a wonderful line in Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead. Talking about a wonderful line in Gilead is talking about any line in Gilead. In Gilead. But she says the following about a father and son who had, and I quote here, they had buried their differences. It must be said, however, that they buried them not very deeply, <laughs> and perhaps more as one would bank a, bank a fire than smother it. What Radak is saying is that that's what human forgiveness all too often looks like, and divine forgiveness is different in that it is fully open-hearted and generous, and it puts the grudge down. Now, I understand there are people in this room who will say, but what about this story in Tanakh? And what about that story? And yes, okay, we can talk about some of that later, but I think what's important here is Radak's claim that this is an essential element, arguably the essential element, of God's godness, right? What makes God not us is the capacity forgiveness, for forgiveness. It is not power. It is not a commitment to smiting enemies. Right? What makes God God and not us 
is the open-heartedness that results in forgiveness. You can find, those of you who want to look at this later, also in Abravanel and others. This is a kind of somewhat well-known trope um, in medieval readings of, of this text. Or to put this differently, I think one of the things Radak is committed to, and again, I suggest this is actually a pretty good reading of Yeshayahu. I'll show you why I think that in just a moment, is that God's godness is inextricably bound up with God's goodness. Right? That is, what makes God God is the fact that God is good and generous. Now, is this to be accepted as the pshat, the plain sense, the contextual meaning of what Isaiah is saying? So look at source 4 for a minute. Psalm 103, one of the most remarkable texts in Tanakh, a kind of extended meditation on God's love and mercy. Um, the psalm says, Rachum v'chanun Hashem, sorry, that resh fell out, not sure why, Erech haim v'rav chesed, God is, all these words are a little difficult, merciful and um, gracious, chanun gracious meaning another word to be reclaimed by Jews, showing grace, that is giving more than is required, Erech haim, um, slow to anger, v'rav chesed, abounding in love. Lo la'netzach yariv v'lo la'olam yitor. God will not forever be angry or hold a grudge for all time. Lo kechata'enu asalanu. God did not do to us or does not do to us according to our sins. V'lo chavonotenu gamalalenu. And God has not done to us in proportion with our own iniquities. And then the next line, right? For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is God's overwhelming love for those who fear God. The image here of kigavhu shamayi me'aretz, right? The heavens are higher than the earth, is here explicitly tied to God's immense capacity for love. I can't prove this, but I suspect that what leads Radak to be confident that the meaning in Isaiah is what it is, is the fact that the psalm makes it explicit that what makes God so utterly different from anything in this world is love, generosity, mercy, Forgiveness. Now, I'll just say briefly, I don't want to um, sink into this hole. The word chesed in, the, in Tanakh is really complicated. You know, you have essentially in every generation a recapitulation of the following argument. Someone says, usually a professional Bible scholar, someone says chesed really is fundamentally about loyalty and commitment to a relationship. Someone else says, no. Chesed is really love, kindness. And then someone else says, well, actually those two things are deeply entwined. One of the reasons God is so committed to God's covenant with Israel is out of God's love. And one of the reasons God is so committed not to abandoning God's love is a function of God's loyalty. 
right? And that's why you will see, by the way, it's fascinating, if you open almost any pasuk in Tanakh where the word chesed appears, and the word chesed is the dominant motif of the Psalms, fully 54 of 150 Psalms talk about the word chesed. Um, if you open Tanakh and look at a bunch of translations, you will see the word chesed translated in an incredible array of different ways, and often in different ways in the same translation from Psalm to Psalm. So at one end, again, you'll see the translation chesed as loyalty, and at the other end, love, kindness. The word loving kindness goes back all the way to the Tyndale Bible. Tyndale Bible, how do you say that? Tyndale, the first full translation of the um, entire Bible into English, which coins the word loving kindness because it is torn between translating chesed as love and translating love as kindness, and ends up coining the word loving kindness, um, which then makes it into King James. And then like much of the King James makes it into our um, English. Um, so the word chesed is particularly important because in what you could argue is, I mean, at the risk of sounding like a Christian scholar for a minute, you could argue that one of the central creeds in Tanakh is Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. That is, you have that as source 6. Hashem, Hashem, El Rachum V'Chanun, etc. But first... Look at the Ten Commandments, Shmot Chaf, Exodus 20. Lo tishtachavelahem velot ovdeim. Do not bow down to other gods or serve them. Ki anochi Hashem elohecha, because I, the Lord your God, el kana, I am a zealous, impassioned God. Poked avon avot albanim al shileshim va'al ribeim. I visit... Um, the sins of the fathers on their sons for four generations, listen I to those who hate me. Um, and I do chesed for thousands of generations, to those who love me and observe my commandments. Um, I want to just mention a couple of things that are familiar probably, but that are worth saying lest people kind of get lost in this for a minute. One is that already Tanakh itself will express profound misgivings about the idea of God visiting the iniquity of one generation on the next. This is a kind of fundamental tension in Tanakh itself between, right, um, this kind of corporate identity that imagines that I can bear the consequences of my father's behavior some, by the way, have tried to psychologize that. If you've ever been in a family, you might see the way that sins of parents are played out and the consequences faced in the life of their descendants. Um, others have observed, I don't think this necessarily makes it better, but it's worth noting, that the idea of shileshim veribeim, the third and fourth generation, may be a way of saying, I will visit the consequences of this on all of the generations of the family that are alive at that moment, right? The most you ever get, okay, maybe in Me'asharim this is less true. You could talk about five generations on a regular basis, but most often, right, you talk about four generations, so I will visit the consequences are on the entire family that is alive at that moment. But to be crude and mathematical in a place where that has no place, this is awesome, um, <laughs> to be crude and mathematical in a place where that has no place, the relationship of God's anger to God's love is three or four to a thousand. 
This is significant because one of the things as we will see further as we go on is that Tanakh wants to make abundantly clear that God's love far outweighs and outstrips God's anger, that God's anger is temporary and reactive rather than essential to who God is, whereas God's love is fundamentally essential and a constitutive piece of God's character. Now, the reason I wanted to read this verse in Exodus from the Ten Commandments is the reaction to the golden calf, to the Chet Egel, is remarkable in, in no small part because of how it plays with and transforms the Ten Commandments themselves. So I will not recount the story of the golden calf, but Moshe begs for God's mercy, and in chapter 33, verse 19, he says to God, na et drachecha. Show me, please, your ways. Um, and these verses are, I think you can say, an answer to that prayer, okay? And this is probably the most repeated and quoted formula in Tanakh. Oh, we're going back again, this is amazing. Um, <laughs> this is all a very complex practical joke that you will soon be let in on. Um, <laughs> So let's just read this for a minute. And God passed before Moshe and said, footnote that is probably of interest to maybe half a person in this room. The Rambam suggests that this verse ought to be vocalized, uh, sorry, ought to be punctuated totally differently than we punctu punctuated. He reads this as, Adonai el rachum v'chanun erech ha'payim v'rav chesed, right? That is, God passed before him, and God said, but the way we usually understand this is, God passed before him and said, Adonai, Adonai, the Lord, the Lord, el rachum v'chanun, a God merciful and gracious. Erech ha'payim, slow to anger, literally having a long nose, We'll talk about maybe why that is the, the image for slow to anger in a minute. Virav chesed, abundant in love. JPS, dealing with the pair, chesed ve'emet, not badly translates kindness and faithfulness. You might even say faithful kindness. Notzer chesed la'alafim, God um, um, passes on the, holds onto and extends the chesed, um, for thousands of generations, nosei avon vafesha vechata'a, and God, um, I guess you would say forgives, you want to be hyper-literal, we could talk about this another day, carries literally, forgives sin, iniquity, and transgression, and but, v'nakei lo yinakei, but God does not remit all punishment. God visits the iniquity of parents upon children. To the third and fourth generations. Now, I want to say just a couple of things about these verses because they will open up, I think, a lot about the biblical theology of divine love. First of all, Nosei avon vafesha vechata'a, 
Avon, Fesha, and Chata'a are a way of including in this umbrella every conceivable form of human wrongdoing. It is all covered by this vast loving forgiveness of God. Now, as we saw already in the Ten Commandments, love is prioritized over anger. Kindness even to the thousandth generation, anger merely to the third and fourth. But one of the things that's interesting here is that in the context of a sin, the order is reversed. In the Ten Commandments, there is the threat. Do not violate the prohibition on idolatry because I, God, am El Kana. I am a zealous, impassioned God. I do not forgive easily. This just went too, right? I do not forgive easily. All right, I'm just going to sing because I just have had it. Um, I do not forgive easily and also love. In the context of having committed the most egregious possible moment of idolatry, how does God reveal God's self? No, 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 love first. Now, you might expect the opposite, right? You, expect, you just did the most horrible thing. I will never forget this sin. This sin will be formative for everything that comes after. I, God, am an angry God, and I punish for generations. Instead, in the wake of Cheta Egel, God leads with, El rachum v'chanun erech ha'payim v'rav chesed ve'emet. On the assumption that you have been reading the book of Exodus, you are supposed to notice that in this moment, precisely of Israel's most egregious violation of the covenant, God says, why don't we lead with mercy and love and forgiveness, and we'll put anger later. Right? Oh, you're back. Um... um by the way, I think there's something really profound. <laughs> you can't hear me? I mean, come on. Um, I may be hoarse for a week, but you can hear me. Um, it's really interesting, by the way, that Israel's most egregious betrayal of the covenant becomes the locust for the fullest revelation of God's love which I think suggests the extent to which in the biblical imagination, love and forgiveness are inextricably bound up with one another, right? There's a way in which you can only learn the depth of God's love in a moment where forgiveness is what is called for. Now, you should also notice, I think a tremendous development happens here, which is in the 10 commandments, God said, that God is no chesed la'alafim. God is bestowing of love for thousands of generations. mitzvotai to those who love me and keep my commandments. In the wake of the golden calf, God appears to revise God's self-description. This has nothing to do with whether you love me or not. I feel like in another moment there should be like an Alvin Ailey group that comes out and dances this. In other words, to put this differently, by the way, this is a kind of psychiatric test to see whether I'm qualified to teach here. 
I hope that I'm doing okay. Do I appear unfazed? I hope so. Now, in other words, the claim here is, let's just understand something for a minute. God's chesed in this text appears to be, crucially, unconditional. I extend chesed, period. Meaning, if you understand that this verse, these two verses, are a kind of rereading of the prohibition on idolatry um, from 13 chapters earlier, you discover this amazing revision, right? This claim that God is not just extending of love to those who love God, but God is extending of love, period. Extending for a thousand generations. By the way, it is also the case um, that you do not re- have the repetition of the word I to those who hate me, which makes you wonder whether the threat of that three, four generations might also be more, more grave. Not really sure. Now, I would also observe that in this formula, which again is repeated or played with over and over again in Tanakh, there is only one word that repeats, and that is... You guys are all hearing high holiday davening. <laughs> chesed. V'rav chesed ve'emet notzer chesed la'alafim. The word chesed um, is the only word that, repears, that appears more than once, which suggests the desire to place a special accent and emphasis on it. Um, now, perhaps just a brief observation about the last phrase. I think one of the central struggles that Tanakh has, and this is so many light years away from, you know, the Old Testament God of vengeance, is given how radically forgiving God is, how do we not end up in a world where anything goes and no one bears any responsibility for their behavior? And so the insistence that there are consequences to sin and misbehavior are crucial to this text. To borrow a term from 20th century um, cultural history and Christian theology, the rejection of what Bonhoeffer famously called cheap grace. I rely on God, I don't have to do anything. There is no cheap grace in the book of Exodus. And crucially, and maybe I should have brought texts that emphasize this, God's mercy can be prayed for, but one cannot presume upon it. Which is why you have a few places in Tanakh where the voice will emerge that says, perhaps God will forgive. Perhaps God will forgive is a way of acknowledging that God remains God rather than a saccharine tank of forgiveness. I know I just did a horrible thing, but God loves me. I know I'm the most corrupt person who ever lived, but God's providence has placed me here. Um, So, Maybe one additional thought, and then we'll push forward, is that I think it's interesting, at least for thinking about biblical theology, that there is no attempt, aspiration, or I think even interest in Tanakh in attempting to define God's essence in any way other than who God is in relation. Did you follow what I just said? The biblical God is always God in relation. Adonai, Adonai, El Rachum v'Chanun. That is a statement of God's relationship to God's creation. 
There is no statement here of Hashem, Hashem, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. First of all, it isn't clear which biblical texts believe that. But more importantly, I would say in the following somewhat crude way, the book of Exodus is not interested in that. It doesn't presume that what biblical theology does is reflect on the essence of God. It reflects in who God is in relation. What Christians call God pro nobis, God for us. Um, okay, now, this is, a, this is actually pretty important because when, let's say, somebody like, let's take one of my favorite people, Richard Dawkins, say, when somebody like Richard Dawkins basically you know, says that the God of the Hebrew Bible is an unimaginable bully, a hateful monster, the most genocidal fanatic in the history of Western literature, what is worth thinking about at the beginning is how utterly different Israel's own description of its God is. Right? What's, what, what I think is so striking is that this formula is everywhere, right? This sort of like deep-seated assumption that who God is, is about love, mercy, and forgiveness. Now, what makes the Bible amazing and contemporary and far richer than any one sixth grade teacher ever led on to them is that the Bible also makes abundant space for the experience of, if you're this, how come that? Right? That is to say, the chasm between what you would expect the world to look like if it were run by a God of love and compassion and forgiveness versus the world, in fact, which we inhabit. This is what the Protestant Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann calls the testimony of Tanakh and the counter-testimony of Tanakh. The testimony is God is merciful, loving, and forgiveness. The counter-testimony is, Job says, ha, huh, really? And many Psalms do the same thing. If that were true, what about this? Like what I always you know, say to students in, in theology classes is, the difference between the modern world and the biblical world on this question is entirely about the range of options that is considered as an answer to this problem, not the experience of the problem itself. Right? That in the modern world, one possible answer available to religious people is, maybe there's no one out there. In the biblical world, you shrey gewalt about and at that God because that's the range of possible experiences of the world. It's not about the questions, it's about the possible answers. And that's what makes, as Art Green has observed, that's what makes arguably Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav the first modern Jewish thinker because he's the first traditionalist thinker who, about whom you can tell that what keeps him up at night is not only I feel guilty and need to be absolved of sin, but it's also I'm talking and I have no idea if there's anybody out there. And that's a transition to modernity. Whereas in the book of Psalms, I can rage at God, but that actually means that the relationship is always alive. Can't rage at someone who's not there. And ironically, by the way, that's how biblical texts keep the God who seems absent present. If you talk about God not being there all the time, then ironically and brilliantly you have brought God back, even if it's only to talk about the ways that your relationship is struggling. And if that doesn't make human sense to you, imagine, I know no one here has ever been like this, imagine a phase in young adulthood when 
You just want to revisit your breakup with someone over and over again because it keeps them there for you. Now, this is about something about which philosophers would say mutatis mutandis. With all of the important differences between those two cases, that human experience is something you can totally relate to, right? People who talk to their parents every night after their parents have died, right? Their parents are gone, but I'm going to keep them present by appealing to them. People who rage at parents they can no longer speak to, and they keep on raging because it keeps their parents in the room, right? That's part of what goes on here, um, is the talking about that God keeps God relational. Um, okay, now, here's the next cool step. And here's a line that you all know, but I'm guessing this has never been presented this way, so it's important to think about this. Here's one of the many cases in Tanakh that alludes to this verse, and something really interesting happens. Oh, badly copied. Chanun v'rachum Adonai, erech chased. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and vast in mercy. The next part, which is the core part, got cut off of this. I apologize. Tov Adonai lakol. God is good to all. V'rachamav al. So from. And God's, 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 God's mercy extends to all of God's creations. Here's what Psalm 145 just did without you even blinking. In the book of Exodus, God promised faithful love, forgiveness, and mercy to the fellow members of God's covenant. Comes Psalm 145 and says, you know what is true of God's relationship to the members of God's covenant is also true about God's relationship to everything God has ever made. That verse in Ashrei, Tov Adonai Lakov Rachamav al Kol Maasav, is this completely wild expansion of what you might think of as a unique prerogative available to those whom God has entered into a unique covenant with to everybody. It is not a coincidence that the Rambam, by far the greatest universalist of the Middle Ages, quotes this verse every time, more or less, he wants to make an argument for universal responsibility. The word coal in this verse, all, is everything to him. By the way, this is one of the... That was clever and I didn't even mean it. The, 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 the Rambam's... It's actually sort of interesting. Here's this is like a little, little digression into halakha for a minute. Um, danger Will Rogers. Um, Will Robinson, whatever it is. Um, no, I want to I sort of observe that. I think this is actually quite, quite an a, important point. The Rambam totally transforms the meaning of lifni mishurat hadin, of going beyond the letter of the law, because in the Mishnah Torah, going beyond the letter of the law does not mean being more punctilious or, 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 or strict with a ritual obligation, but rather extending ethical obligations that I have to my people, to all of humanity. That's what virtue does. Virtue makes me universal because a person who is merciful does not look at the person in front of him and say, not a Jew. The creational ethos overrides the covenantal boundary. Right? That is, you and I are both created by God. I respond to you 
with the mercy that I have been called upon to embody. All of that is enabled biblically, the Rambam thinks, by the simple phrase, Tov Adonai kol ma'asav, which follows on the heels of Chanun v'rachum Adonai. In other words, Exodus, 33 has been univer- Exodus 34 has been universalized. It applies to everyone. Okay. Now, next step. Okay. It is a general assumption of Tanakh that God is incomparably great. And if you want to descend into a discussion of, you know, biblical scholarship, some things people might consider heresy, one of the most kind of interesting ongoing debates among biblical scholars is when you hear things like, Micha mocha ba'ilim Hashem, who is like you among the gods, Hashem, some people, including some serious Bible scholars, will say, that's really just vestigial language in a text that is fully monotheistic. Other people will say, well, you know, saying that God is greater than all the other non-gods is not a big compliment. (laughs) It's like walking up to a seventh grader and saying, you are so mighty, you are bigger and stronger than any fifth grader. It's a very odd, non-pshat way of looking at this text, right? Um, And one is forced, I think, to offer a somewhat forced reading. Um, But be that as it it may, right? By the way, the JPS is an amazing example of evasion. I believe JPS translate that as, who is is like you among the celestials? (laughs) Okay, great. Okay, so anyway, now, so you have here, just look at source nine for a minute, skip source eight. This is fairly well known, I just mentioned it. Who is like you, God, majestic in holiness, and what has God done to earn this? Cast God's enemies into the sea and redeemed Israel. God is powerful, and God is powerful on the side of those whom God wishes to redeem. Psalm 89. Who in the skies can equal God, can compare with the Lord among the divine beings? Okay? A God greatly dreaded in the council of holy beings, held in awe by all around him. God is the holiest and the most awe-striking, awe-inspiring God there is. And then magnificently, in a line that is quoted in the liturgy, Psalm 35, this is just magnificently beautiful. It's one of those moments where you have to get yourself to stop just reciting words as if they're overly familiar to you. Kol atzmotai tomarna, Adonai mi chamocha. Let all my bones proclaim God who is like you. And what makes you incomparable? You know what makes you the most incomparable in the whole universe? You take the side of the weak and vulnerable and protect them. All that is fine and good, and beautiful and interesting. But now look at source 8, Micha Perek Zion. Because this is totally fascinating. And it, I think, builds this theology to the next level. 
Ni el kamocha. Who is a God like you? By the way, these are always rhetorical questions to which the answer of the chorus is no one, right? It's important to just underscore that. Who is a God like you? No seavon ve'over al pesha l'sheirit nachalato. Forgiving sin and remitting transgression of those who um, are his inheritance. Lo hechazik la'ad apo. God has not maintained God's anger forever. Ki Because God loves love. God loves love. By the way, you daven for this every day, if you daven, right? You have given us not just the obligation to chesed, but to quote from another verse in Micha, ahavat chesed, the love of love, which in the world of Musar in the 20th century is all about character, because they say there is no relationship in the inner world of an osei chesed and the inner world of an ohev chesed. An Osech Chesed shows up at a hospital. An Ohev Chesed shows up with love. Now, what you discover about the Prophet Micha, if you read slowly enough, is that he's saying that when you love love, you are walking in God's ways. Because God is Chafet Chesed, and you should be Ohev Chesed. Yeshuv Yerachamenu, God will return and have mercy upon us, yichbosh avonotenu, and then this very odd line that you are familiar from, probably familiar with, probably from Tashlich, Batashlich, Batashlich bimtsulot yam kol chatotam, and you cast into the depths all of their sins. As you may know, endless manuscripts of the Bible change this to kol chatotenu all of our sins. I'll comment about that in just a second. Um, you, should, you will give faithfulness to Yaakov, love to Avraham, um, as you promised them in days of old. Now, just to be clear, the claim here is what makes God incomparably great, what makes God the only God worthy of worship is God's love. God's chesed. Now, if you're reading the whole book of Micha, you will know that the book begins with a portrayal of God arriving in wrath, right? And concludes with this dramatic praise of God's mercy. One of the things you learn about the prophets, and I think people miss this all the time, is that mercy always has the last word. Always. And one of the things that makes the prophets so moving as figures is that in their most powerful moments, they too embody that. Probably the most poignant example of this is the prophet Amos, who is as brutal in his criticism of the people as is imaginable, is enormously violent in his portrayal of what will happen to them, and then without skipping a beat, turns to God and says, could you forgive them? Because Yaakov is so small. And what is so incredibly moving about that is Amos knows that God is the one who loves the weak. So what he needs to do is just say to God, I know they're sinners, but they're also weak, and you can't help it. You love the weak. 
I know that about you. You're not going to be able to attack them if they're weak. I have begun to say in public with great reservations about the exhibitionism of this, but I think it's important, especially at this late date. I, I feel like there are few more important questions to ask oneself as an heir of the Torah than whether we have ever truly worshipped a God who loves widows, orphans, strangers, and the weak. Have you ever in one moment of your life truly staked your life on, that's who I worship? I worship the God of children in cages. I worship the God of, and here you can fill in, tragically, as a statement of human history, you can go on forever in filling out this sentence. I worship the God of women who are abused and have no way out. I worship the God of people who cannot find food to eat. I worship the God of people who cannot drive a car without being assaulted. It can go on forever. Um, now, There's more you can say here, but in the interest of time, I just want to say one last word about Micha, which I think is enormously important, which is the emphasis that you see again and again in biblical texts, and this directly cuts at this sort of traditional stereotype of the God of the Old Testament, right? That is, it is never anger that God delights in, but rather mercy. Anger is, in biblical theology, and I'll talk about this very briefly in just a moment. Anger is a necessity given the brokenness of the world and the recalcitrance of human nature. Anger is never something God wants, and anger is never something that endures. That is really kind of fundamental, I think, to how the Bible understands itself. Um, I also want to say something else that is hard sell for American Jews. The language of casting our sins, bimtsulot yam, casting our sins um, into the depths of the sea, is, I think, an allusion to the song of the sea. Yaradu bimtsulot kimo aven. And the argument here is that our sins are as great an enemy of God as Paro is. Or if you prefer, our sins keep us even more imprisoned than Paro does. Now, to return to one of my favorite hobby horses, Jews in America don't talk about sin. Why? Because Christians do. And so in this endless list of things that Jews abandon to Christianity in America, right? Remember, those of you who are here, the ultimate lie of Hebrew school education, there is no notion of an afterlife in Judaism, right? The problem with that statement is there is no text about which is that is true. Okay, there is no text about which is true, certainly by a certain point late in the biblical period. Or, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, the number of times people have said to me after public lectures and shirim, does Judaism have a notion of grace? Right? And here's another one. Christians talk about sin all the time. Jews don't talk about that. By the way, 
It makes it very hard to have a vision of human nature that can make sense of all kinds of things of the world we live in if you're not willing to talk. If you don't like the language of sin, let's talk about the stubborn intransigence of human nature. The allusion to casting the Egyptians into the sea and now the Egyptians are our sins is extremely interesting. Um, now, I want to just observe something which I'm not selling, but I think is worth noting. Almost everyone amends this text, as I said. They change it to It would actually be interesting, given that Micha is obsessed with that day in the great future when the entire world will worship God together, to imagine that Micha's vision here is following in the tradition of Psalm 145, you will forgive all of our sins and theirs too. And that is part of what it will enable all of humanity to worship God together. Not selling that, just suggesting maybe. Now, it is, I'm now three for three on being very late from where I want to be. So I want to maybe um, end this part by talking briefly about Hosea Yud Aleph, Hosea 11, which for whatever it's worth, I would suggest is one of the most theologically powerful texts in the Bible. And I mean that in two senses. One, the portrait of God. And two, as we'll see in a minute, it is, I think you could make an argument, the first text in Tanakh that explicitly engages in a project you could call theology. In that, it stops and says, let's talk about our metaphors for a minute. It's a very unusual thing for a biblical text to do. So let me just go. Now, I am, context here is God has just described in extremely moving terms how God has loved Israel from childhood which I think means nothing Israel ever did earned it. God loved Israel from childhood. God, God raised Israel like a mother raises her children. God held Israel to God's cheek the way a mother holds an infant to God's cheek. And God is confronted with, but what am I supposed to do with you people? And then comes the following. How can I give you up, Ephraim? Let go of you, Israel. How can I make you like Adma and Tzvoyim? What are Adma and Tzvoyim? Chidona Tanach, question? Anybody? They were the two cities that are destroyed with Sdom and Amorah. How can I treat you like that? My heart is turning upside down in me. All of my compassion is stirred up within me. I will not act on my anger. I will never destroy Ephraim again. And then comes this amazing moment of theology. Because I am God and not a person. I'm going to translate somewhat freely as holy, but right here. And I will not come in anger. Now, this is quite fascinating. First of all, Hosea lets you in on the inner struggle in God. 
between the sense that there should be consequences of people's sin and the sense that I can't punish someone who I love. And then this amazing moment, I am God and not a man. Right? In other words, just understand what's going on here. There is a whole series of metaphors by which you compare people and God. And it is important to realize that those metaphors are all inadequate. God is like a parent, but God is not a parent. God is like a spouse, but God is not a spouse. And then comes the explanation, which is completely wild. You might think, you might be a convinced Maimonidean who learned the guy to the perplexed with someone who understood it. And so you want to say, oh, God is like a spouse or a parent, but God is not in fact a spouse or a parent because God is so transcendent that God does not even have relationships. Or God is so transcendent that God doesn't actually have feelings. But instead, what Hosea appears to say is, I am God and not a man. And what that means is, that when I am a parent, as I am in this chapter, a human parent, in most cases, there is something you can imagine that that child would do that would make that parent walk away and say, I cannot anymore, I'm done. God says, I'm God. My love is inexhaustible. I will never walk away. Hosea is perhaps Judaism's most powerful critic of the Rambam, right? You want to talk about what makes God God, and you think what makes God God is the incapacity to feel or relate? No. What makes God God is that God's forgiveness and love are so utterly vast that you don't even know what I'm talking about. By the way, it becomes even more powerful because the phrase, El anochi ish, appears one other time in Tanakh in Sefer B'midbar as a description of a God who never changes his mind. And Hosea uses the same phrase to mean, I am precisely a God who changes his mind, and that's because I love you. And so even if I resolve to punish you at a certain point, I can't do it anymore, because I love you. Now, some of you will say, not so long ago, someone raised their hand and said to me, I don't need such an anthropomorphic God. To which I would say, let's take just a minute and talk about what we think anthropomorphism means. Now, on the one hand, if you are interested in the God of Western philosophy, and you believe that God's greatness consists in God's being a self-sufficient, unmoved mover who is not interested in or capable of entering into relationship, well, then anything that quote-unquote falls short of that is anthropomorphism. Um, but let's ask the question, a God whose love is so unfathomably deep that no human being could ever fully understand it, let alone embody it. First of all, if you think of that as anthropomorphism, then I would ask whether and why anthropomorphism is a bad thing. But more importantly and more profoundly, why should we assume that love is a distinctly human capacity and that when we find it or claim to find it in the non-human, we are guilty of anthropomorphism. 
Might we not argue instead that love is something that exists in the universe, that we human beings tap into it, and that God is the most perfect instantiation of it? Why flatter ourselves into believing that that which is most precious about life and the universe is uniquely and distinctively human? And by the way, what is amazing about this is this very debate is going on in the opposite direction right now in primatology. Because when people like Franz Duwal and other people who have discovered all kinds of ethical qualities in animals say, bonobos have extremely developed notions of compassion and mutual responsibilities. Chimpanzees have a really developed sense of justice and fairness. Other primatologists and some philosophers say, and I quote here, stop anthropomorphizing. I rest my case, right? In other words, it's the same assumption, the same unwarranted assumption in my view, that love means you're a human. Here, Abraham Joshua Heschel was magnificent in saying, when you talk about human love, when you talk about divine love, that's not an anthropomorphism. When you talk about human love, that's a theomorphism. That is to say, you are saying, you are saying that human beings are able to tap into imperfectly into that which God is the perfect embodiment of. Heschel also says in this totally beautiful way, you know, people say that when I talk about God's love for every weak and vulnerable person in the world, that's anthropomorphism, to which my only response is, can you show me that person? Or the late biblical scholar Robert Gordis wonderfully said, you know what's anthropomorphism? Insisting that God can't actually care about people who are weak. That's describing God as a person. So, we ought to, I suggest, recover the God of Judaism from Maimonides, um, the God of Tanakh, the God of Chazal, the God of the entirety of the Jewish canon, um, is a God who cares, loves, has mercy, and forgives. And if I had a little time now, I would actually talk about, maybe you can feed me this in the Q&A period that will begin in a minute, if you are so kind. Um, <laughs> also gets angry. Um, sometimes I feel like America would be a much healthier place if anyone in this country still believed in divine anger. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. If you took seriously Exodus 22, that if you stomp upon the weak, I will stomp upon you, we might live in a slightly different place. Um, now, I want to just close for now by talking about the Talmud Yerushalmi, one passage that to me is just unbelievably moving, and I'm not sure what the implications of this are, but I'm quite sure that we could have a fascinating discussion in which some of you would argue the implications of this are totally radical and subversive. Some of you would be less sure, but I want to just mention this, okay? This is a fascinating passage in Yerushalmi. Sha'alu l'chokhmah, they asked wisdom, chote ma'u a sinner, what is his punishment? Amru Misfortune pursues sinners. That is to say, if you ask wisdom, what is the consequence of sin? It is naturalistically that you reap what you sow. Right? In the famous image of Sefer Mishlei, if you dig a pit, you'll fall into it. Right? It is kind of the ineluctable way of the world that one reaps what one sows. 
So they asked prophecy. The sinner, what is his punishment? Here's a divine punishment. The person that sins should die. So we have here the answer of wisdom, the naturalistic consequence, the ineluctable consequence of sin is suffering. The prophetic response that the suffering is, that the consequence is punishment, death in this case. But the Yerushalmi is not done. They asked God, they asked God, a sinner, what is her punishment? Let them repent and I'll forgive them. One of the things that this text means, I think, is something that Chazal could never allow themselves to say explicitly, but that they say here implicitly. Even the most sacred texts of Revelation cannot fully capture or convey the unfathomable depths of God's love and forgiveness. They go to texts in Tanakh and say, what will be the consequence of a life of sin? And then they go to God and God says, not so fast. Not sure those texts properly convey the depths of my forgiveness. That is at least, I would suggest, interesting. Okay, let's take some questions. Do I have a pen? Yes. All right, can I have a volunteer to walk around and play? F, this is like a dream come true, man. Talk show. Okay, I'm going to take a round of three so that I can evade at least one. So, You're pointing to the people, right? Uh, sure. Alan, you want to go first? Okay. I didn't get to talk about what we do with all this, but I'm going to try to magically weave that into my answers. Okay. okay go for it. It gives references for the first two uh, responses to the question uh, and there's no reference listed here. I'm just wondering, like, is that because it's just not there or it Chazal made it up and what that could mean? Okay. That's one I'm going to evade. Go ahead. Um. <laughs> God says, I'm going to wipe them out. <laughs> yeah, did you just get fired? Uh, that's what I just said. <laughs> I'd like to ask about divine anger. <laughs> with, with all this love, where's the room for anger as a corollary? Right. Help us understand better the God who loves, how did you put it, the children in cages, the widows, the orphans, all this stuff. And Thank you very much. <laughs> I don't know, yes, and let me try to address this one. Um, 
So, Alan, I, I want to give you an answer that is... I, this is an answer I am extremely hesitant to give. I fully maintain the right to withdraw this later this evening after you're all gone. <laughs> but my initial thought about this, which maybe is too far out there, is that the reason no text is cited is because that's the point. If you need a text to show you, this is where I think Chazal, are Chazal is just like so gorgeous in this way. If you need a text to show you that love is more fundamental to who God is than anger, I'm deeply sorry for you. And here's three. Right? In other words, really need a text to tell you that love is more God-worthy than anger or hate? Okay, well, in order to calm you down, I'll give you some. But that's not a question you should need a text for. I mean, I, I think I've quoted this before in different settings. It reminds me of, you know, the, the famous story of Rav Yehuda Amital, right? Rosh Yeshiva Yeshivat Haaretzion, who is supposedly asked by a student during the time of Oslo and the kind of, you know, collapse of Israeli society in many ways, you know, is it halachically permissible to murder the prime minister? To which he says, you know, the very fact that you have come to me with this question is a statement of the colossal failure of everything we have striven to be about. No, it is not permissible. <laughs> Are you out of your mind? But the very fact that there's a what's wrong with you, right? I think the same point on some level might be made about the relationship between anger and love. On the one hand, there's tons of texts that make that point. On the other hand, really? You have no moral imagination, no theological imagination of your own? It's like saying in Chazal, why do Chazal say that walking in God's ways is about compassion and not about just as God smites his enemies, so should you? So on the one hand, you have texts that say, well, God doesn't lose control when God's angry, right? On the other hand, the answer is, really? Really? There's a spiritual illness in requiring a proof text. I could be totally wrong about this, which doesn't make me feel less strongly about it. <laughs> um, sorry. The, uh, no, so I think that the story of Cheta Ego plays out, I think, this is two that I'm holding myself the permission to withdraw, that nake lo yinake, that there are consequences. But the consequences will only be, if that reading is right, that third and fourth generation means only people who are alive now, right? Consequences not go on forever. But the love and mercy will extend for everybody. Meaning, you see, here's what's so messy about this. Divine love does not mean that there's no such thing as a punishment. By the way, that's true about most decent parents too. Here's the thing about theology that teaches you, I think, about parenting. Love comes with expectations. The love is not conditional on the fulfilling of the expectations, but nor does the love apologize for having expectations. Love without expectations creates not citizens, but narcissists. 
I'm perfect. I'm so fabulous. I don't know anybody anything. That's not love, that's sin. You can't raise people to grow up and think like that. Now, the question of divine anger. So, I think that in the biblical imagination, anger is what happens when love is repeatedly thwarted and disappointed. Daniel Berrigan used to describe love, anger as outraged love. Um, in other words, I think that the Bible, you, you can wrestle with what you want to do with this, you can wrestle with how literally you want to take this or not take this, but I think for Tanakh, if God really loves, then God will be profoundly disappointed. Imagine a world in which, I don't know, Imagine a world in which the richest nation in the history of the world has 45 million people who live below a poverty line. Imagine the richest nation of the world in which fully 3 million children get by or don't get by on a family that earns less than $2 a day. Imagine such a world in which God loves people, in which God has no anger. You know, here again, I would invoke something that Heschel says that is really, I have to say, this completely upended my world. It's one of, the, one of the things I read him say that totally kind of like, really like shook me to my core. He says in a couple of places, you know, people complain that the God of the Hebrew Bible is a God of wrath. Well, let me tell you that for those of us who endured the middle of the 20th century, there is nothing that comforts us and enables us to live more than the belief in God's anger. And you know why? Because that means that somewhere somebody actually cared about children being murdered. It is not true that the entire cosmos is indifferent. And if God loves the world, and if God loves people, then at a certain point when you abuse people, think about it like this. How would you react if someone came, I mean, I'm sorry, this is really crude and very painful, but I think it's the point theologically. How would you react if someone murdered your child? In biblical theology, that's exactly what happens when someone kills someone, murders someone. So how would you react? If you wouldn't get angry at all, you would not be necessarily shocked if someone said to you, are you sure you loved them? And you might want to say, of course I'd get angry. Now, I might have a whole conversation about what I wouldn't wouldn't do as a result of that anger. But, right, I obviously care enough that it will affect me in a deep way. Now, to your second point, this is the dilemma, I think. So I, let me say this in two ways. And, you know, I will say this in as honest and kind of brutally candid a way as I can. Um, I think there can really be no doubt that in um, the battle between the Rambam and his critics about the nature of God, of the God of Judaism, the Rambam's critics are right and the Rambam is wrong. Right? God is not an un... The God of the Jewish canon is not an unfeeling, unmoved mover an unrelational deity off-contemplating itself for all eternity. Um, 
The question about that personal God is not whether it's the correct reading of the canon, but rather whether it is metaphysically believable in this day and age. That is, a, to me, a much more interesting question. The other question is easy. To read Tanakh and end up with a God who doesn't care is to surrender Tanakh to Aristotle. And the synthesis turns out to be a surrender masquerading as a synthesis. It is not a self-respecting Jewish theology in that sense. The question is, I think, whether we live in a world in which believing in such a God makes sense. Um, now, what I would say about that, you know, some of you were here when I gave a lecture a couple of years ago called Why I Sometimes Still Believe in God. Um, so I would say that what, what needs to happen in a Jewish theology, and it's one of the ways that a contemporary Jewish theology is not biblical, either because it strays from the Bible or it imagines that the world has changed. The latter is what we might call the Yitz Greenberg approach, right? The three eras of Jewish history. The problem with that is there's no scientific reason whatsoever to believe that that's true. It's very powerful as a reading of scripture, right? Yitz Greenberg famously says that as Jewish history goes on, God withdraws more and more. Human beings have to take responsibility. I think that one of the things I, I, I would you know, suggest that one of the only ways to maintain a God of radical love is to imagine that a different way of manifesting God's love is allowing the world to be truly free. That includes nature, for nature to unfold as nature unfolds, and it includes human beings, for human beings to have meaningful freedom that affects the way the world works. And that divine intervention in the world is manifest in things like pricks of conscience and turns of heart, not in splitting of seas and drowning enemies. Now, at a certain point, someone might say, well, a God who has that much power and doesn't use it in any circumstance is not worthy of being called God. And my response to that is, I hear you and I'm not going to argue this point with you because I, yeah, I get it. Um, but I think it is possible to imagine a world in which love manifests itself as tzimtzu more than anything else. Love sometimes means getting out of the way. Now that makes it hard to figure out exactly what your relationship is to the biblical canon. Yitz has his approach, which is to say, and it, it's sort of having your cake and eating it too, and I mean that in a complimentary way. You get the biblical world being like the biblical world, and you get the modern world not having to be like that. Um, I don't know. I don't know whether that's believable either. Um, although what's amazing is, for those of you who were there years ago, when I asked Yitz Greenberg at one synagogue or another where we had this conversation, and I asked him this in philosophies in order to protect him a little bit, I said, Yitz, are those three eras ontological or phenomenological? Meaning, are you saying that that's the way the world is or that's the way people perceive the world? And he said, if you push me hard enough, probably phenomenological. Well, that just totally reorients everything he's ever written, <laughs> which is really interesting. 
right? Because um, on some level he realizes he doesn't have anything empirical in the universe that would lead him to think that providence once worked one way and now it works another. Look, I mean, maybe I can, I can say one other, one other thing about this. Look, as, as to the extent that I am that non-existent breed called a Jewish theologian, um, I recently had the following experience. I am genuinely not joking. I was invited to a university to give a lecture on the relationship between Jewish theology and academic Jewish studies. It was supposed to be a panel. And like two weeks before the conference, I got a call from the organizer who said, well, I was looking around at the realm of Jewish theology in North America, and why don't you just speak by yourself? <laughs> now, this was not a compliment to me, just to be clear. Um, this is a fascinating statement. That would be its own lecture. Why did that happen? Um, um, now, oversimplifying, I would suggest the following maybe useful way of thinking about some of this. Some Jewish thinkers look at the world around them, think, what do I find believable? And then search the canon for language that enables them to say some version of that. The founder of the movement of which this synagogue is a member basically did just that. I say this without a shemetz of judgment, right? I'm merely describing something. Some Jewish thinkers say, look, I am committed to the authority of the canon. I start out with what I understand to be canonical assumptions, and then I bring them into conversations with my and our experience of the contemporary world and see what comes out. Now, if you're a student of hermeneutics and interpretation, you will say, well, that is radically oversimplified. And I will say, yes, that's exactly right. It is radically oversimplified. And yet, I have tried in my life as a religious person to begin with God as I understand God from the Bible and the rabbinic tradition, and then to figure out whether and what I can still say about that God in the world in which I inhabit. And often, I believe the answer to that question is nothing. Sometimes I believe I can say some version of what I just said to you. I am not in the business, those of you who have learned with me, I am not in the business of pretending to be able to say things I cannot say. God's seal is truth. You never lie about what you think is believable. It is unworthy of you and unworthy of God. Um, so I don't know. Personally, for whatever it's worth, I have never found the liberal alternatives to God particularly interesting. Pastorally, I find them fascinating. And I don't mean pastorally in a condescending way. If someone says to me, you know, I believe that the world is God, or I believe there is, whatever this might mean, a process in the universe that makes for salvation. I'm not sure that's any more clear than any other conception of God, frankly. Or at times, which is decidedly not the same thing, a power in the universe that makes for salvation. Right? So I would say, I totally understand that you cannot affirm a God who has will and consciousness, 
but want to be able to call something God. Humanly, pastorally, I get that. Religiously, philosophically, I don't find that remotely interesting. Now, I am not an academic philosopher who says, what I don't find interesting is not interesting. I am not making such a claim. I am saying I don't find it interesting. I would not say ata to a God who is a process. I could not feel commanded by a God who is the world. And I could not be a Jew if I did not feel commanded. It's just my experience of what it means to inherit this vast ocean we call Judaism. And it doesn't fit perfectly. I remember, you know, there's a great line, and then I'll take one last very quick round of questions. Um, the Catholic writer G.K. Chesterton, a great writer, a serious anti-Semite. Um, <laughs> Chesterton, that's not rare. Um, <laughs> Chesterton, he's out to lunch with Ezra Pound at the moment. Um, <laughs> Chesterton um, says at one point, you know, people ask why people like me have become really devout Catholics. And the answer is, we, the image he gives is something like, we tried on the suit and it fit, it fit perfectly without creases. To which I would say, I don't know where you live. My suit has lots of creases. And you know what? After the 20th century, it ought to have creases. It ought to have creases, but it's still my suit. And to invoke the Jewish folktale that has occasioned an endless number of books, I'm not that compelled by a theology of Joseph's overcoat, where what I end up with as God is a little tiny hanky. Like, it doesn't, I don't want to worship that. Because frankly, a God who doesn't have will and consciousness is actually lesser than I am in my philosophical understanding. If I'm capable of more love than your God, your God is not God. That's the philosopher in me speaking. Pastorally, I humanly, I might say something else. Some of my best friends believe in some version of that God. Some of them are sitting right here, right? But to me, like it just doesn't, I, I wouldn't worship something that is all the way down in my understanding of the value of life inferior to me. I value the good, but God doesn't. I'm not going to worship that. In this day and age, a God who is more indifferent than most of us, I should worship that? I should turn indifference into a metaphysical principle? Not interested. I'm just not interested. I'd rather be an atheist. Okay, next round. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Okay, quickly. <laughs> David always elicits these like tirades for me, I'm sorry. <laughs> It's a question about the creases in the suit. Oh, wow. Okay, good. Uh, I, I really don't understand the point of positing a God who loves the widows and orphans and children in cages if the children are just as tortured and the six million are just as dead. What's the point? Anybody else have a like question? <laughs> Mine's very light. Very light, good. As is appropriate, they're not light. Yes, go ahead. 
So I, I, I've noticed some phenomenon in this country about sinning. Uh, I feel totally comfortable using the word sinning, and I'm Jewish. And um, so I'm wondering if you could comment about sinners who are acting out of anger and not interested in the love or any kind of teshuva, if you will. And also the impact, right, of, like, we're talking about relationship of God. So relationship of sinning and society and love and society. Maybe, uh, maybe it has to be defined what love is also, but thank you. He's standing. This terrifies me. me. Oh, okay. Just all for emphasis. Um, in in your lecture, uh, what, why I sometimes believe in God, or why I still sometimes believe in God, I think you mentioned that the God you believe in is a form of uh, related to open theism, and you kind of got that from the Ralbach or Gersonides. This ultimately comes, I believe, still from a picture of Rambam and from Aristotle. People like Rambam were interested in finding a god who would be creator of the universe because there have been so many theistic personalities over the years that we think that the most honest way of finding a god we can believe in is by connecting it with the creator and the prime mover. So my question is, do you think there's any way in which we can make the prime mover or the classical theistic god, the god of love? Okay, so as you read online, this lecture will end at 10. <laughs> Let me try very briefly to, if I can coin a term, gesture at responses um, to what are obviously like really hard questions. Um, although I will confess that I'm not sure I fully got the question of number two. Um, so what's the point? Um, so. You know, when you were talking, I was reminded of, um, some of you may be familiar with the writings or the work of Yehuda Bauer, who was, I believe, like the chief historian at Yad Vashem for a long time, and um, an angry anti-believer, an angry non-believer, or however they want to call that. Um, and one of the things that Bauer, I assume he wrote this in essays too, but I remember it more from interviews with him where he basically says, I'm not interested in a, in a divine crybaby. I'm not interested in the God of Jeremiah weeping. Because at the end of the day, all you're doing is metaphysically creating another entity that's suffering. Like, what is that? Um, and perhaps to a fault, my response to that is like my response to many things, um, which is to say, you know, I think that human dialogue would be richer and more powerful if when it came to metaphysical pictures, we spent less time trying to convince each other and more time trying to understand the different intuitions we have about the world. Um, I think actually fruitful dialogue between theists and non-theists, fruitful dialogue is actually more often about that, right? 
what does it mean to see the world with this pair of glasses versus that pair of glasses? And I often say, you know, what I, to the extent that I am a Jewish theologian, which I'm not always sure that you can have as much doubt as I have and really call yourself a theologian, but um, to the extent that theology is what I do, I don't do what a philosopher might call apologetic theology, by which I mean, here's a set of arguments for why you should believe what I do. I do something that is much more in the register of what you would call confessional theology, which is, here is what the world looks like when you wear a certain pair of glasses. If these lenses seem congenial to you, you're welcome to them. And if they don't, maybe they'll tell me about the ones that do, and we'll learn something about the different ways one can be human in the world. Fascinatingly, by the way, the most powerful articulation of confessional theology as a project is the beginning of Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik's The Only Man of Faith. He is in that mode an extremely liberal thinker, far more liberal than Heschel, who thinks he can convince people of the truth of his most fundamental assumptions. Um, I deeply respect Bauer's assumption, or uh, assumption is not the right word, experience, conclusion, I'm not sure what the right thing to say is. I don't share it because I think that the aspiration to live one's life in service of a God who loves widows and orphans and but whose hands in responding to them are us is enormously powerful. It took me a long time to realize this. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, a text I have taught in this space many times, um, God is described as Ohev um, Ger, God loves the stranger and manifests that love in giving the stranger food and clothing. And then immediately after, we find, and you must love the stranger. And JPS very astutely there translates, you too must love the stranger, realizing that in Sefer Dvarim, loving the stranger is a form of imitating God. If you worship a God who loves the stranger, you will love the stranger too. But it only recently occurred to me, and I was reading someone else who said it, it was not my own position, that another way to understand, or a related way to understand the connection between those two verses is, God loves the stranger, and how does God give the stranger bread and clothing? What are you doing right now? Now the problem with that is not that that theology doesn't work, the problem is that very few of us really take that to heart. That's what I meant when I said, how many of us have ever spent the moment of our life worshiping that God? Or if I don't mean to insult anyone, I'll say about myself. How many moments of my life have I spent really worshiping a God, you know, to go back to Hagar, a God who sees the one whom no one else sees. Ata el roi. You are the God who sees, despite the fact that some people treat me as an object, you see me as a human being. And it is possible, to go back to what I said to David, in a world in which right, God is not an active interventionist, that that is, it's not about a divine crybaby. It's about a command and a truth that reverberates through the universe whether or not we're willing to hear it and respond to it. Personally, I find that very powerful, totally daunting, and when I really think about it, terrifying because it exposes 98% of the history of religion 
as ugly fraud. When a person does not merit, religion itself becomes a poison. Is that an answer? It's not really an answer. It's a different way of experiencing that question. Um, now, about quickly, sorry, I know it's late. What is love? Um, so, I tried to say in the first lecture, and I will come back to this in some other form. If I ever finish the book I'm writing, um, we can talk about it. Um, the best language I can come up with for what love is in theological mode is some version of Nell Nodding's notion of caring. Um, that is to say, the fate of the one I love matters to me all the way down. Um, what I didn't get to talk about here, and that I, you know, it's kind of like cheating in a way to have a lecture about love in the Bible without talking about the relationship between universal love and care and covenantal elective love, right? The love of Sefer Dvarim, which imagines a deeply erotic connection between God and Israel. So let me say this in one more sentence in a way that is, I think, interesting to think about. Something that um, the late Yohanan Mufs wrote about really beautifully. Um, philosophers try to purify, even philosophers who are on the good side of this, try to purify, I'm being a little flip here, but try to purify God of being like a person and say, God is personal, but God is not a person. Which, Moffs of Three of the Bible says, well, that's great, God is personal, it's just that God has no personality anymore. The God of the Bible, what makes the God of the Bible interesting is God has a personality. God falls in love with Avram. So, some of us might say, well, that's too anthropomorphic. To which someone else might say, really, that's where you're going to draw the line about anthropomorphism? If God is really personal, I mean, you fall in love with someone. You say, yes, but, I'm not, but God's not a person. God loves in a different way. And then we can go round and round. Um, but I, I will say as a minimum, some version of love equals care. Just as loving your neighbor doesn't mean looking at them and saying, oh my God, I love you. Right? <laughs> but rather... Michael, you I love that way, but, 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 but most people I frankly don't, right? I was to say, there has to be a way in biblical ethics for loving people I don't like. That's not romantic love. That's something else. Caring is not a bad way of thinking about that, I think. And then finally, open theism and the God of Maimonides. Um, first of all, Okay, three sentences, by which I mean 12. Um, no, so I don't think that open theism at all, uh, open theism is a movement in contemporary Christian theology that claims that um, human freedom is so profound and so basic that God does not yet know what will happen and leaves it open for human beings to act. 
not because God lacks the power, but because God makes the decision um, to leave the world open. And what was alluded to is, um, is my suggestion that if you don't like that, it's at least worth noticing that Rabbah, Gersonides in the Middle Ages, also said, omniscience doesn't mean that God knows everything. It means that God knows everything that can be known and the future cannot be known. Just as omnipotence means God can do everything that is doable, not everything. So that the seventh grade philosophy question of can God create a stone that cannot be lifted is actually, the answer is no, because it's not doable, not because God is not omnipotent. If it's doable, God can do it, right? Now, I do not think that the God of open theism is the God of Maimonides, other than in this point. And maybe this is what you meant, I'm not sure. So if it was, I apologize for saying it as a contrast. Open theism, by definition, will emphasize the category of creation because it, by definition, will have a somewhat attenuated notion of divine providence. If you don't like an attenuated notion of divine providence, I suggest you talk to me about the notion of providence in The Guide of the Perplexed, which my best understanding consists of the following. God gave you a brain, good luck. <laughs> Pretty sure that's what 317 in the guide means. Um, honestly. Um, now, the difference is that open theism believes that God profoundly cares about what is happening in the world and that God really does, going back to your question, love the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. All things that Maimonides' God doesn't, won't, can't do. In other words, open theism is a form of relational theology. Maimonides' God is decidedly non-relational all the way down. You can relate to God in the sense of worshiping God, but God has no relationship with you. Maimonides says that explicitly. So yes, when you are going to have a theology that emphasizes freedom, you're going to almost by definition move back and place great gravity, great weight on creation. But the way you're imagining God and the way you're imagining what your relationship is and your responsibilities to God are very different than you would end up from an Aristotelian first cause or unmoved mover. It's just a very different world that you, that you inhabit. Um, yeah, why don't I leave it there? I, um, I am, as is well known, the world's worst emailer. But if you have thoughts about anything I've said, <laughs> I am always happy to hear them. I read them. I think about them. I change my mind in light of them. Once in a while, I even manage to respond to them. But I just want to say that if you have thoughts you want to share, I promise you that I read every last one of them and think about them, even if there are issues in my life that make it not possible for me to respond to all of them. So thank you all very much. Thanks for listening. To learn more with Hadar, please visit hadar.org Torah.